0: We can turn with in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter two. Colossians, chapter two, we're going to look at verses six through 10 this morning, uh, but I will read all the way to verse 15 to set the context. Walking in he who walked with us is the title or walking in Christ is the title of the sermon. Uh, We'll look at verses six through 10, but I'll read to verse 15. So begin reading at verse six. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. So walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. As you've been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwritten writing of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Amen. Well, let us pray. Lord our God, we are thankful for the triumph of Christ, and we're thankful for the dwelling of Christ, that he is the one who reconciles all things in him, or you reconcile all things in him, uh, by him. And thank you, O God, that those who are once enemies and wicked in our works, O God, with wicked minds, thank you that we have been reconciled as well through the working of the Son. Thank you again for his mission, how the Son took on human flesh without any change in his divinity. Thank you, O God, that he is fully God and fully man. He is like us uh, in every way, yet without sin, with all the essential properties, O God, and common infirmities, yet without sin. Thank you for this one who is very God and very man, the yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Thank you that we have such a king and such a Lord as he. And thank you that we have been rooted and established in him. And so we pray, O God, that we would be reminded in whom we have life, in whom we live, and in whom we continue to live. And so we pray, O God, that we would be watchful of being allured by false doctrine, that we'd be watchful of being allured by things that sound good and might have the appearance of wisdom and humility. But we pray, O God, that we would know where our hope lies, and that is in Christ. And so thank you, O God, for the encouragement you give to us day by day. In your word, thank you for the encouragement you give to us week by week as we gather as your saints, that all things are in Christ. Thank you for who he is and what he has done. And so we pray, oh God, that your saints would be strengthened and encouraged for the walk in which we walk. And we pray, oh God, that if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls. And we pray, oh God, in all things you would be glorified. And we also ask once again, you would send forth your spirit to give us illumination from on high as we come to once again a difficult passage in scripture. But give us your spirit, we pray, to understand what is going on. So thank you for all that you do. May you be honored and glorified. Now we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I live pretty close to my office, so I like to walk to work, and that includes in rain or shine. And it was last week during that that storm that we had, the windstorm, that I was walking, and it was so windy I couldn't even use my umbrella. I opened it, and I was being carried about to and fro. Not by every wind of doctrine, but you get the point, but carried about to and fro by that umbrella. I had to put it away and just deal with the rain beating up against me as I walked. Eventually, I had to put that umbrella away and just deal because I was being tossed to and fro. Well, doctrinally, we're not supposed to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, right? As we walk in this world, we walk rooted and established in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't change the fact there's going to be storms. It doesn't change the fact there's going to be rain. It doesn't change the fact there's going to be wind beating against us. We walk rooted and established in someone, and that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem sometimes those tempests that blow against us isn't just sin, but it's false doctrine it's heretics. It's men who wish to try and take out and remove us from where our hope lies, namely in Christ. And remember, that's why Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. There were certain men, there were certain heretics, typically a blending of Greek ideas and Jewish ideas, although the Jewish ideas certainly took precedent and took priority. Paul is writing to deal with that. Paul is writing to encourage the church at Colossae to say, listen, don't worry about what they have to say. Stay rooted in Christ. In your Christian walk, in all of your life, you must walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's purpose of his ministry, his general ministry to the church as a whole, but also his specific ministry to the church at Colossae. He doesn't want them to be persuaded by alluring and persuasive words and so in a lot of ways we come to the body of the book or the main uh, we do come to the body of the book but we come to the heart of the book especially in verses six and seven you have received christ so then walk in him not in vain philosophy not in the traditions of men not in basic principles but in the lord jesus christ i think the problem in these verses is very clear the problem of vain philosophy. The problem of using the natural world, the problem of using natural law, the problem of using Mosaic, the Mosaic law as a means of salvation. The problem of saying that we can do this out or the other to earn our way and have communion with God. That was the problem at Colossae. That was the problem Paul is writing to deal with. A philosophy that has overstepped its bounds into the salvific realm. And what they were saying really was, you don't need Christ. You need these traditions. You don't need Christ. You need these basic principles. You don't need Christ at all. You need yourself and these other ways. Look what we've done. We've had communion with God, and it was done in a false way. It was a pretense. It was an appearance. And Paul is saying, don't worry about that. You Colossians know who Christ is. You Colossians have heard who Christ is. You Colossians have received blessed doctrine. Now cling to that and cling to Christ. And there are plenty of false doctrines that emerge in the church that lead people away from their anchor and shifting times. There's only one who keeps us firm and rooted, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for his people. And so we see in verses six through 10, that Paul affirms that the Colossians Christian life is rooted in Christ. Our Christian life, dear brethren, is rooted in Christ, established in him, built up in him, and built up in no other. And so we will look at this idea under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see walking in Christ, verses 6 and 7. Then secondly, we'll see wary of vain philosophy in verses 8 through 10. So we walk in Christ. Verses 6 and 7, we must also be wary of vain philosophy in verses 8 through 10. So two W's, let us first look at walking in Christ, verses 6 and 7. And notice he says in verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So this is in the context, Paul has just uh, asserted his love for them. He's asserted his authority over them which the false teachers do not have, do or have. They don't actually love the church at Colossae, and they don't actually have authority over the church at Colossae, but Paul does. Remember, it's that muscle flex. He's like, I've been appointed. I've been affirmed. I've been chosen by God. Now, he loves them, and he cares for them, but he still exercises the authority that God has given to them. And one thing he rejoices to see in them is that they are have good order and that they're steadfast, in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is to encourage them. You have been firm. You have stood firm. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. I've heard of your hope. And so he's writing them to encourage them, remain in those things. And it's good to be reminded that even though we, uh, if we're doing well and we're, we're strong in the Lord, we still must be wary of things that are out there. But overall, it's meant to encourage. Here's what you are. Here's what you have. Be watchful of these things. Don't leave what you already have in the Savior. So he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so then walk in him. You see that connection? Just as you received, so then walk. And the idea of receiving here, I think, is twofold. They've received the word as it has been handed down. There is a body of doctrine. There is a truth that has been handed down. We've seen a lot of language here. Learned. Heard understood and as we'll see in verse 7 taught it was the gospel that was proclaimed to them that the hope that they have in christ in whom they have heard so they received that by faith they believed upon it by faith so they received the word as it has been handed down and we see that in verses uh, chapter 4 verse 17 as he writes to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. You have received in the Lord is something that God gives, but it's also something that must be received by faith. So God gives it, God uh, spreads it forth through his gospel, works by his spirit through the body of doctrine, but also it's something that they must uh, uh, apprehend. It's something they must lay hold of by faith. And so I think it's not just the doctrine that's been handed down, But you individually, Colossians, have received it. That is, you've received it by faith. You've received Christ by faith. You've entered in by faith. You've looked to Christ by faith. And so you see the connection there? As you have received Christ by faith, so walk in him. See, brethren, our Christian walk is always one by faith. As Habakkuk 2 says, the just shall live by faith. And Paul uses that, and Hebrews uses that, Uh, uh, Paul used that specifically as as the way in which we enter in by faith, the just live by faith. But also in Hebrews, it's used in our Christian walk, the just live by faith. That is, it's not we're in by faith and stay in by works, but even our Christian walk is always one by faith, isn't it? We continually cling to our Savior and look to him by faith. It's not I'm in by faith and stay in by my own way, But Christ, who is my anchor, gives me all I need. He gives me justification, Christ's work for us. He also gives me sanctification, Christ's work in us. You see, Christ gives us all that we need. Justification is for our guilt. Sanctification is for our corruption. And he's working in us now. Sanctification is part of our Christian walk. And one day we will be fully sanctified. But brethren, it is always by Christ, isn't it? Even though we are taught to, and commanded by God to live in a certain way because of our grounding in him, it still always starts by looking to the Savior, doesn't it? Still always starts by looking to our Lord in our sanctification. You struggle with certain sins, look to Jesus and ask him for aid. You struggle with certain problems and illnesses, look to Jesus and he will give you aid. That is the emphasis that he gives here. So as you have received him, so walk in him. And this is what he's going to defend throughout the rest of the letter. Our life is built up and bound up in Christ. And already in 1-9, he has said, as he prays for them, that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. How we do that is in our Lord and Savior always. It's not, wow, we're in, we believed, great, we can forget Jesus. No, that's not how that works. We need Christ every hour of every day of every moment in which we live. Even in four five, he says, walk in wisdom to those who are outside, redeeming the time. We are saved in him. We are changed in him. But then Christ works graces within us as we look to him. So as we've entered in, we also continue in by faith. And notice he goes on to unpack what that means in verse 7. Rooted and built up and established. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. The means perhaps by which we grow or the, the, the reason for which we grow. Both could be in play there. But notice rooted and built up in him. Using tree metaphors which they do often using building metaphors when one is walking along the way who keeps us grounded in the midst of those tempests that blow who keep, even though the tree might be swaying who keeps that tree grounded and rooted or perhaps better yet who is our root it is jesus christ To think that we can walk this world not being rooted in Him is foolishness. (laughs) To think it's in by faith and remain in by ourselves is utter ridiculousness. It is always in Him that we must remain. We walk in Him, rooted and strengthened in Him. And what's interesting is in Acts 20, Paul uses the language of built up for the church. What is it that keeps us grounded and rooted as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is Christ Himself But also the word. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. So we are rooted, tree metaphor, built up, building metaphor. We are built up and strengthened and established in him. And what's interesting is both these words are used in Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians 2, he talks about how the church is the temple. Christ is the temple, but he's the head, and the church is the body. And so what does that make the church? It makes the church the temple. Now, each and every one of God's people, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but that temple language is so vital and important. When you consider the Old Testament, how did God dwell with his people in a special way? In the tabernacle and in the temple. How does God dwell with his people in a new covenant way in the one who is the temple, who tabernacled among his people? So what does that make us, dear brethren? That temple as we gather. And so as we walk by ourselves, but also walk together, the reality is we ought not to walk alone. We walk together. We walk as a church. We walk with one another because we are built up and rooted as that temple. It is the language of the fact that Christ is bringing in his kingdom. Christ is bringing in his dwelling through his body, namely his church. And if he is the head, we are the body. If he is the temple, we have no need of another, and we walk in him. We don't always feel like he communes with us, dear brethren, but that's why we cling to it by faith, right? Faith is apprehending the things that God says— whether we believe it or whether we feel it or not, right? Not we believe it, we trust it. His word has said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. But so often it doesn't doesn't feel like he is near. That's why the Psalms are so great because he cries out, Lord, I don't feel like you're near. Oh, I love it that the Bible is so real because you and I cry out like that too sometimes. Lord, we don't feel like you're near. Lord, where are you? Lord, how long? What's going on? Yet often in the Psalms, what do they say? Lord, yet. I will trust in you, the God of my salvation. He is near he is our temple, and we are the temple in him, rooted established rooted and um uh, uh rooted and built up in him, but also established in the faith and notice as it's been taught there's doctrine that's handed down there's truth that's been handed down, and we must Cling to that very truth, the truth about Christ himself, but also the truth that's been given down by Christ himself. And notice too, it's not just the truth itself, but we are rooted and established and built up in him who is the truth. Grounded in him, grounded in the faith, grounded in all that he has done for us. Now again, faith can mean the act of faith, my believing upon him, but faith can also mean the faith, a body of doctrine. Both, I think, are in play here. Both, I think, are vital here. It is the faith that we believe upon, but also the faith that is true, that is a body of doctrine, that we cling to. As you have been taught. Don't worry about what these other guys say. Don't worry about these vain philosophers. You've been taught the truth. Now remain steadfast and firm in that. And notice the result, hopefully of being rooted and built up and established in him, hopefully we will abound in it with thanksgiving. Brethren, if we know the truth, if we know the forgiveness that we have, if we know the reconciliation that comes from the work of the son, should we not be thankful? Always. Should we not be a people whose hearts ought to always be stirred? Now, again, I know most of the time our hearts are not always stirred, dear brethren. But again, we cling to it by faith. And we ask God that our hearts would be stirred to thanksgiving. But if we know what Christ has done, if we know who he is, if we know his dwelling, if we know these things, we should be the happiest, most thankful people on the planet, should we not? And I'm not trying to belittle the suffering that people go through. I'm not trying to belittle the sadness that people go through. There is a lot of sadness and perplexity. That's why I went through Ecclesiastes. And I think, I still haven't decided yet, but I still, I think we're going to look at some lament psalms. You know, we've looked at all the sadness and sorrow in the world. Now let's look at how to cry out and all the sadness and sorrow in the world world but we ought to be thankful for all that god has done god this is going this is what i'm going through in my life these are the struggles i'm going through but your word has said i'm forgiven your word has said that you have come down your word has said that you have reconciled thank you for your mercy we got always to you know doxology at the end of every service ought to be as loud so everybody outside can hear what we are our, our praises to god most uh, i don't care if you're off key. I don't care if you're a little out of tune. It's perfectly fine. Just belt it out at the end to God most high. And perhaps another reason as well, he highlights the Thanksgiving aspect here is because Thanksgiving is a good antidote to false doctrine. One who is ungrateful is probably more easily swayed by the vain philosophy. Grumbling, whining, complaining, sniveling. Well, that sounds good. Look at that guy. Look what he did. Wow, he's got communion with God. His feelings seem to be all fine all the time. He seems to be just this happy guy all the time. Great, I want that. Look what he's doing. Oh, yeah, he's he's not doing this. He's not doing that. He's trying these different things. That, And he said, he had communion with God. And it's a false humility. We're going to talk about false humility uh, when we get to, I think it's uh, verse 18. It looks good. And so someone who's snivelly, grumbly, and complaining, that might sound alluring. Yes, I want that. And perhaps sometimes the reason works sound good all the time too, because people feel it, right? They feel the scale, right? I feel it. I've done this. I've done that. Okay. I've to be doing pretty good. I seem to be a pretty decent. That's why people want works. They can feel it. That's why the Hebrews, uh, some say Paul is writing to the Hebrews Because they wanted to go back to the smells and the blood because they could see it, right? We don't see Christ, yet we believe it. We don't see Christ, yet we love him. It's a supernatural work. We don't see it. People want to see it. People want to feel it. People want to know it. And that's why people get allured by these types of things. But what what ought we to do, brethren is walk in Christ. Hopefully that application was clear. I mean, walk in Christ. What ought we to do, brethren? Walk in Christ. Now the whole letter is going to unpack this. What does it mean to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ? He's going to talk about what we are and what Christ has done for us in the rest of chapter two. But when we come to the application section in chapters three and four, how do you walk in Christ, dear brethren? Well, First, set your mind on the things that are above. Look to Christ. Set your mind upon him as the author and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews 12 highlights this for us. Remember that the Christian life is not by working, my working, but Christ who lives in me working. Philippians 1 6, God has said, or Paul says, What God has begun to do in you, he will complete. What God has begun to do in you, he will complete. And that's why in Philippians 2, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who works in you, both to will and to do. Do you see that? So in our Christian walk, we look to Jesus by faith. Doesn't mean we just sit on our hands, right? You struggle with a certain sin, pray to Jesus, look to Jesus, and then shut things down that you need to to deal with that very sin. He, so, it does, it's, so there is that workout, but also it is God who works in. And so we look to him for our strength and for our need. So set your mind. Set your mind upon him if you want to be a good wife, if you want to be a good husband, if you want to be a good child, if you want to be a faithful father, if you want to be a faithful bondservant, if you want to be a faithful master, look to him. That's where it starts. That's how he starts his application section. Look to Jesus in your sanctification. That's how we walk in Him. And the rest of the book will impact that for us. Christ is all we need for our guilt, for our corruption, and for our life. Walk in Him. But as you walk in Him, be wary of vain philosophy. Verses eight through 10. Notice in verse eight, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you. Through philosophy, beware lest anyone plunder you, take away your greatest treasure, and that goes well with what he had already said: Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Christ is our pearl of great price don't that that be taken from you. Be wary of certain things, be wary of this thing called vain philosophy now i 'm going to go on a bit of a rant here, and I 'm really sorry about that, but uh, Just pay attention. Don't get mad at me for what I'm about to say. Just let me finish my thought before you get mad, okay? Okay. All of the commentators agree that he's not condemning all of philosophy here. Okay? They said it. I agree with them, but they said it. I'm going to read some guys afterward as well. And I think it's further explained by what this type of philosophy is in the following verses, but especially empty deceit. It's an empty type of philosophy. And people like to rail on all philosophy because this is the only place in the Bible where the word philosophy is found. Now, why does he use philosophy here? Well, perhaps these men came in and they want to sound smart. I'm a philosopher. I'm gonna let you in on my how my mind works sometimes. If I meet someone and they say I'm a philosopher, I'll think they're pretentious. I'm sorry, I'll just think, I'll just look at them funny. What, what do you mean you're a philosopher? I mean, they come across arrogant. They come across—we're all arrogant and selfish, but I think that way, and perhaps that's why these men said, "We're philosophers." Look at us! Oh, great, that sounds good. It's like one time I heard a guy say, "I'm a theologian." Now, the guy probably is a theologian, but I just—it just sounded pretentious to me. I'm really sorry. I just—the way it is. I'd like—I'd like to think people are more humble, but it's not true that way. Again, I'm just. I'm just talking right now, but just as there is good and bad philosophy or good, good and bad theology, there's good and bad philosophy. So let me finish again, my thought in the history of the church, philosophy was always a handmaiden to theology, a helpmate to theology. And perhaps you could define philosophy as the study of the way things are and why. And it's usually typically a correlation with the created order. God has created this world, and God governs this world, and God has created certain things to be what they are. God made me a man. There's such thing as manness, and I am a man, and other men out there are men, right? God had made them in a certain way. It's real. I'm actually truly a man. There's other types of philosophy and bad stuff out there. But the point is, it's, it's there is a connection with God revealing himself in this world. Uh, revealing himself in this world connection with creation connection with natural theology. And it was the highest of the natural sciences, the highest of the natural sciences. And so this is important. If someone's lowing in their mind and having a cow in their mind, this is what I want you to hear. It does not save natural law, natural theology does not save It just leaves man without excuse. I mean, Romans 1 clearly says that God's eternal power and divineness is revealed in the created order. Our confession says that the scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the wisdom Power and goodness of God. Why? So that men are without excuse. So there is a created order, God has created it. And sometimes in philosophy, someone can make observations about it, but it's not saving. And so it's ignorant to assume it is all bad. Davenant says they therefore who desire philosophy to be exploded from the schools of Christians, are they altogether ignorant? and have it in view to hide their ignorance among the common ignorance of all, or they are wicked and desire to expose us stripped of all advantage from learning untaught and defenseless to artful and armed enemies. Davenant was a very helpful Orthodox man. And a lot of the reformers understand that difference, understand that distinction, understand the nuance. If uh, they understood that there was one that was, natural science but that's why they needed a supernatural science theology that's why theology was called the queen of the sciences by the way that was helpful and important to understand that very thing and so when paul comes to deal with it here it's a specific type it is hollow there is no substance to it because it cannot and does not save it has the appearance of dignity, but there is none whatsoever. And I think Gill has a John Gill has a lengthy quote, understanding the difference here. John Gill has written on every verse of the Bible, he's a particular Baptist, he's part of our heritage. It's long, but just you'll see. When he talks about verse eight, he says, it's not right philosophy or true wisdom, the knowledge of God of the things of nature, of things natural moral, and civil. So that's not what he's talking about here in in verse 8. Which may be attained unto by the use of reason in light of nature. The apostle does not mean to condemn all arts and sciences as useless and hurtful, such as natural philosophy in its various branches, ethics, logic, rhetoric, etc. When kept within due bounds. That's important. Kept within due bounds and in their proper place and sphere. For with instances of these, the scriptures themselves abound. But he means that philosophy or science, which is falsely so-called, the false notions of philosophers, such as the eternity of matter. So when it goes above and beyond, we obviously disagree with it. Of this world, the mortality of souls, the worshiping of demons and angels, etc. And also such principles in philosophy, which in themselves and in the things of nature are true... But when applied to divine things, things above nature, the mere effects of divine power and grace and a pure revelation are false. Do you understand the difference? What uh, philosophy is dealing with or a uh, right philosophy can deal with the things of this world. It cannot deal with the things of heaven. That's important to understand. I don't think you have to read philosophy. I just make sure you don't rail against philosophy. That's why I say all of those things and certainly to philosophy didn't just well, wasn't just referring to the greeks but some of the jewish sects. it was called their philosophy and that certainly is in view here as well and so he was on to define this specific type that he's trying to deal with thank you for letting me rant my whole point of that was just to understand there is a place for it we don't over and it ought not to overstep its bounds you don't have to read it but just recognize there can be good and bad philosophy. That's, that's the point of all, of all I'm trying to say. Hopefully you understand that. And if it's wrong, we, we deal with it where it is wrong and it does not save. And so this is the problem of this philosophy he was teaching it saves. And so notice he goes on to say, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So notice he says, not according to the tr- tradition of men. External rituals as a means of attaining salvation and having communion with God, who is notorious for this? The Pharisees doing all their sorts of traditions of men to be able to have communion with God. You need to wash this, you need to wash that, you need to do all these sorts of things. Paul referred to him uh, refers to this idea of traditions in Galatians 1 14. if he is the one who could have done it, if he is the one who could have kept it, but he knew, uh, but God saved him, and salvation comes by faith in Christ. So traditions of men has this Jewish flavor to it. It can also include Greek flavor to it with their rituals and sacrifices, but traditions of men, not the word. Traditions of what men wish to teach rather than what God has said. So tradition of men. Secondly, according to the basic principles of the world. The world, not heaven. He's going to deal with this again in verse, uh, verse 20. And again, perhaps initially, the word basic principles was typically used for the Greeks to refer to the heavenly bodies. They worship the sun and the moon and the stars, but also Paul uses it uh, with reference to the Judaizers when it comes to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is basic, the Mosaic law, we could say, is primitive. It is like going back to kindergarten when you've graduated. That's the image that he's trying to draw out here. That is why go back to the basics when you have Christ in his fullness? Why go back to the earth when you have heaven come down in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You think you're ascending to heaven by these things, but in reality, it's just basic Ab, It's just basic primitive principles of this world. That's what he's trying to highlight here. And I think the Jewish idea is in play because he's going to deal with circumcision and dietary regulations and festivals in the following verses. And what he's really saying here is anyone who wishes to find salvation in anything but Christ is primitive. That's what he's saying. One who wishes to find salvation anything but Christ is no better than a pagan in the bush who worships the sun, the moon, and the stars. No better. And these men would have walked in. These men would have not liked that. These men would have been like, look at us, we're wonderful and we're great. And look at these, this sophistication that we have. Paul's saying it's not sophisticated at all. It's basic and elementary. So that's one of that's the second thing or second characteristic of this vain philosophy. And thirdly, Not in Christ. Not in Christ. Not according to Christ. Christ has come. Christ has lived. Christ has died. And we'll unpack that more in verses nine and 10. But it's not according to Christ. And that is the key thing that is missing. They're seeking to make their way to heaven by not Christ. Davenant says since Christ is the only way to heaven, he who aims at heaven out of Christ wanders about blind and miserable, and will never arrive hither. The only way to heaven is in Christ Jesus, not in the traditions of men, not in the basic principles of the world, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul unpacks for us in verses 9 and 10. There's some high Christology here, some high and lofty doctrine here, but... We'll try to do our best to unpack it. Verses 9 and 10. We see the one who came down. The one who is in heaven came down from heaven. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We see the essential identity, namely the son, not the father, not the spirit, but the son. Yet it's the triune work of God that the son would take on human flesh. We already saw this in verses 19 and 20. That is, we saw Christ, who is the preeminent one over creation and over new creation. How is it he's over the new creation, namely the church? Verse 14, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, that is, Jesus was in, became incarnate or the son became incarnate to that, that he might have the preeminence over all things. And again, this is that temple language. Again, the dwelling, the, the nearness of God. How is it that we have ne- God, uh, the nearness of God. It's that God dwells among us. That's why in John one eighteen, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so it's not just an essential identity. That is the son is God, but also a redemptive historical identity as well. That is, with the tabernacle, with the temple, all pointing ahead to where God would dwell, namely in his son. And the fact that in his son is in whom we dwell as well. That's why in Psalm 68, we see the ark making its way to Zion. And that's why we see, you know, in Ephesians 4, Psalm 68 is quoted uh, after Christ has ascended into heaven, that man might be in heaven with God, that we who are in Christ might then have dwelling with God as well. And the promise of that in its fullness, when Christ comes back and we are resurrected, well, that's uh, Psalm 68 is probably also in view in uh, Colossians 1.19. It's temple language. And we see this here, the in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, not that all is in God is contained in his body, but that the one who is God became man without conversion, composition, or change. That's the purpose of verse nine. It's talking about the incarnation and the dwelling of God with sinners. The dwelling of God with wretched people like you and I. And the point is, you do not need to ascend to God, but God condescended to us in the incarnation. Without any change in his divinity, he came down and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For in him, we have communion. You don't need the tradition of men. You don't need the basic principles of the world. You have communion with him. And remember, too, that these false teachers were saying, we have communion with God by doing these things. Paul's saying you have communion with God because of what Christ did, because of what the son did by taking on human flesh for his people. And if Christ is God and there's fullness in him, why do you seek salvation not in him? That's what he's saying. And he goes on to further press home. He's going to press home throughout the rest of the letter. But verse 10, at least for us today, what that means for us. And you are complete or have been complete. That is that we already have been complete and we remain complete in him. It's a passive verb there, but not just complete, but you have been full in him. I think there's some parallelism going on there. The word fullness in verse nine with the word fullness in verse 10, that there's fullness of Godhead uh, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily in him. And we dwell fully in him because of what he has done for us. You, if you're in Christ are complete in him. You, if you're in Christ, you are full in him. That's why it's the doctrine of the union of Christ is so important and glorious as well. That's why in John 15, when we talk about the true vine and the branches, how does one grow and bear fruit? In him. In him. In him. In him. In him. How do we grow and bear fruit, dear brethren? In him. Because of the working that he works among us. And the beauty is the one who dwelt among us continues to dwell with us by the power of the Spirit. And so he is the one who is head over all things. We are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. That is, the one who is the head of the church is over all things. And we saw the language of principality and power in one sixteen. That is, he has the one who's created all principality and power. So he is over them, and he has power over them. He is the head of all of them. He's going to talk about them again in verse 15, how he's triumphed over them through his dying and rising again, old creation, new creation, creator, redeemer. He is the head and he is bringing his fullness through his church. What's interesting is the language of fullness is used once it is used in Ephesians a lot to talk about how Christ, how God brings his presence in a favorable way in the world. After Christ has sat down at the right hand, Ephesians one twenty, far above all principality and power. Typically that refers to the angelic realm. And remember the false teacher said, we can pray to angels. And Paul's like, why? Christ is above them all. Why pray to them when Christ is the head of them? But Paul says, they're far above all of them. He has been given the name that is above every other name. And in verse 22, he puts all things under his feet. That is Psalm 8. That is Psalm 110. And he gave him Christ to be head over all things to the church. When you see the world going the way it does, remember, Christ has been given as, the, uh, as he is the head over all things. And he's been given as the head to be head over the church. The church advances, the church remains, kingdoms rise and fall, but the church advances. We might get discouraged with how the world goes and might get discouraged by the demographics and statistics, well, Christianity is doing, the kingdom of God advances and Christ is filling his fullness to the ends of the earth in his church, which is his body. Verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How does he spread his presence to the advancement of the kingdom, to the preaching of the gospel, to the salvation of sinners? That's how his presence is spread to the ends of the earth. And a comforting thing to know, brethren, is as we walk in him through us, he is spreading his glory to the ends of the earth and we in him. And in fact, in 3, 17 of Ephesians, He prays for them. He prays for the whole family. He prays uh, for the church at uh, Ephesus, which applies to us and applies to other churches as well, that we be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. We need his spirit, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, which he does, that you who are rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, temple language, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We have the spirit who indwells us individually if you're in Christ. And as we gather as the saints, Christ is spreading his presence to the ends of the earth. And In fact, he says in the benediction, in Ephesians three twenty and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to him, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That is, we are complete in him and we do, but we do not walk alone. We walk with the saints. We walk with the church. We walk with where his fullness dwells. And so brethren, we'll close with two lines of application One is be wary of vain philosophy. Just watch, be watchful, be on guard against it. Be wary of any any method that leads you away from Christ. Some might sound alluring, but in reality, those things turn out to be primitive. Cling to Christ. One thing that's sad to see too is it is vain. And some people might think they're communing with Christ by doing these certain things, but in reality, their life is but nothing. The life is hollow, but in Christ, brethren, there is fullness. So be wary of vain philosophy, cling to Christ. And then the second line of application is be comforted by the fullness of Christ. Be comforted by his presence among, in you, by the spirit. Be comforted by his presence in the church as it advances. Be comforted by that truth when you feel as if he's not near. Christ is always with his saints He is always with his people, and we do pray that the word of God would dwell in us richly, that Christ Himself would dwell in us richly, for He is all we need. Davenant says, "For if we have complete wisdom in Christ, there is no need of philosophical additions. If complete righteousness, there is no need of legal ceremonies. If sanctification, there is as little need of angels for purifiers or enlighteners of our souls. We have complete." Fullness in Him. Now, if you're an unbeliever in Christ, there are many vain philosophies out there that you are allured by. I can assure you of this, though. You might feel full for a time, but in the end, you'll be left wanting. There is fullness in Christ Jesus. Believe upon Him, accept, receive, and rest upon Him, and you shall have justification sanctification and the promise of glorification you shall be full in him believe upon him by faith and you shall be saved let us pray O oh lord our god we are thankful for your eternal plan that the son would become incarnate thank you that the son became incarnate and dwelt among his people thank you for his tabernacling Thank you for his living. We're thankful for his dying on our behalf, his rising again on our behalf, and thank you that he has ascended into heaven. He sits at your right hand. Thank you, O God, for that in him is saving knowledge. In him is everlasting life. In him, there is fullness. In him, there is your presence. In him, there is everlasting joy. Please forgive us, O God, for the times we do get allured and we're not as weary as we should be. Please forgive us, O God, for the times in which we do not cling to Christ as we ought to, are not as thankful as we should be. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for your mercy and forgiveness. Thank you that you give us all we need. All the benefits uh, that Christ has purchased for us are applied by the Spirit. Thank you for this reality. So help us to walk in Christ, we pray. Help us set our mind upon the things that are above. Help us to cling to your word. We also pray we would be comforted by the truth that we are full in him. That is, Christ has dwelt among us. Christ dwells with us individually and corporately. And may we spread your glory to the ends of the earth as your fullness spreads in your church. Thank you for your nearness. Thank you for your dwelling. Thank you for your love for wretched saints like us and that you do dwell with us because of Christ and his finished work. And we pray, oh God, if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Give them life, we pray, for you are a God who can change and give new life. Please work by your spirit. Please work to save. Please work to enable your elect to believe by faith. Thank you that faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. All the benefits we have in Christ are a gift. Thank you that you are creator. Thank you that you are redeemer. And thank you, oh God, you're moving all things for your purposes and for your end. And so we ask you to be honored and glorified today. Give us the strength and supply that we need as we look to Christ day by day and help us to do this by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.